you were with us last Sunday morning, you'll remember we began a new series of studies in the New Testament book of Acts, and we are breaking in at Acts 13, verse 42. Paul and Barnabas have been speaking in a church in Antioch, and I'll give you a little of the contextual backdrop as we get further into our study in a moment or two. And Paul the Apostle has just finished speaking, and he's been focused on the Old Testament redemptive history of God. And so at verse 42, we read, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who had talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowd, crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So it's all taking place in Antioch. A very different Antioch is a rural hill country is what we're looking at this morning. Now, remember the context. Paul and Barnabas arrived in Antioch. They do what they always do. They worship in the local synagogue on a Saturday morning. And the officials in the synagogue, the elders and others, after they're introduced, they hear a little about them. They say, would you like to speak? And so, they invite Paul to speak. And if you've got your uh, a spare finger this morning, go back to Acts Chapter 13, verse 16, and we read, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And he begins a spectacular message that does one thing, and it's this, that let me try and do this visually for you. He takes them back, way back, into the deep history of the Old Testament. And then he begins slowly but surely to unfold for them what theologians call God's redemptive plan in history. And so he shows them the panoply of the entire Old Testament. He touches on the highlights. And I imagine he spoke for a long time. But as he is moving towards the climax of his message, he focuses on David, Israel's greatest king, and all that God was doing and accomplishing through David, and then he brings his message to a climax by focusing on Jesus. 
And he talks of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's purposes and plans in eternity past. And so Christ is the focus and climax and fulfillment of all that Peter has been saying. And notice how it ends. Verse 42 is where we began our study this morning. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So what is going on here? Simply this. That as Paul is speaking that morning, God himself, through his Holy Spirit, wraps his arms of love and grace around this entire congregation, and they are for the first time being exposed to the gospel. They've been exposed to all that the Old Testament teaches. They understand and recognize something of the love and grace of God, but now, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, they discover this, that faith and religious things are not simply found in a scroll. The scroll becomes real. It becomes fulfilled. It impacts the heart and mind and soul and draws you into a relationship with Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's going on here. And no wonder many of them were saying to Paul and to Barnabas, tell us more. Because what had happened was what multi-millions of people have discovered down through the centuries. That fulfillment, contentment, satisfaction, forgiveness, and the love and grace and mercy of God have become a living reality for them. It's no longer pie in the sky when you die. It's a living reality here and now. And so Paul and Barnabas were mobbed with people from the synagogue. Tell us more. And clearly, they went to lunch afterwards and talked for a great time. And it finishes with that wonderful phrase, urge them to continue in the grace of of God. But notice what happens quickly afterwards. Verse 44, things begin to change, and they don't change for the better. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, stop me right there. The whole city. Now, does Luke mean every three-year-old wee one to 94-year-old seniors? Probably not. What he's telling us is this, that almost the whole city, hundreds upon hundreds had gathered to hear Paul speak, asking what is going on. Because, <clears throat> because you can just imagine all week long, people are talking and saying, were you there last Saturday when he began to talk? Wasn't that amazing? And others saying, no, I don't know that I agree with all of this. I need to hear more. And others were saying, actually, my husband was so impacted, he's been praying every day since. What on earth is going on? And that's the conversation and the chit-chat in the homes around Antioch for the entire week. And so, huge numbers come to hear the Apostle Paul. And notice what happens, verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, 
and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And then jump down to verse 49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. Now, having painted the picture of Antioch in the first century and all that was going on and the breakthrough of the gospel, let me take it into the 21st century. Because here is the question for us this morning. Now, if you're visiting First Pres this morning, first of all, you're very welcome. We're delighted you're here. But one of the things we do on a Sunday morning is this. Now, whenever we study the Scriptures and we take them very seriously, we look at them in the context of the first century, and then we build the bridge into the 21st century. And so here's my 21st century question this morning. Paul and Barnabas were not only discriminated against, they were persecuted. Now, in 21st century USA, the chances of you and I being persecuted are almost nil. But being discriminated against, well, that I think is up for debate. And let me set up the question for you. The question is this. Is there a place in a 21st century cultural context where meaning and purpose are so often found in Facebook and in Twitter and living on the net and emails and texts? And after all, isn't religion a little archaic? Isn't it out of touch? Does it honestly have anything to offer this sophisticated digital world that we live in? Does it have anything to say? Or is it something we used to believe? Now, hold that thought in your mind. Because one of the other things we like to do on a Sunday morning is to ask ourselves, are we living out our faith day by day in the real world. And so let's move the question forward a little. Do people think of us as odd, a little narrow-minded, judgmental, always against something? Is that how we're looked upon? Is that the caricature for a Christian today? And it may be. Now, if you're anything like me, you naturally are just a little odd. And people think you're odd because you are odd, not because of your faith, just because you're odd. I have to confess that I am remarkably popular among nine-year-old boys. That's, those, that's my demographics, because that's my sense of humor level. They, I'm huge with nine-year-olds. They'll give me high fives and fist bumps and tell me jokes and all sorts of things. Those are my peeps. That's where I'm at my most comfortable. And the question is this, are we free in a business environment, in civil society, in politics, to talk about our faith without being ostracized or discriminated against or marginalized or talked down to? In the history of the United States, 
we have what is called the Establishment Clause. Now, please bear with me. The Establishment Clause says this. You'll find it in the First Amendment. And it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that is in there intentionally. And it comes before the right to assemble. It comes before free speech. It is our first freedom. Now look at it again. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And what it means is this, that if you go for a job interview, an employer cannot say to you, you're not getting this job because you are an Episcopalian. You're not getting this job because you are a Pentecostal. You're not getting this job or you can't buy this piece of land or you can't go to this school or that school because you're not a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or a Methodist or whatever. They cannot do that. Because right there in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, Congress will never say that from this day on there is a Church of America. And if you're not a member of the Church of America, you can't exist in free, civilized society. Before coming to the United States, I was a pastor in the Church of Scotland. There's a Church of England and a Church of Ireland and a Church of Wales. They were what is called national churches. No one was ever or has ever been forced to join them. You're not discriminated against because you're a member or not. 300 years ago, it was a different story. But today, that just doesn't exist. You're free. And here... We have freedom of religion. Now, let me take that a step further. Religion is valuable because it's helped shape and fashion our ethical and moral standards. It helps us be a democratic nation. Because whenever people want to worship together and a government outlaws their ability and desire to worship, it usually does not work out well for that government, quite honestly. But we have that freedom in another document. And it says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it goes a step further. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now let me go back and remind you how it began. We hold these truths to be self evident. All men are created equal, and then they add, and this is the point I'm trying to get across, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Freedom of religion, the pursuit of life, liberty, happiness, includes freedom of religion. That we are free to assemble anytime we wish. And notice what it says. It tells us that that right is not given to us by the government. Because if it's given to us by the government, it can be taken away by a subsequent government. But notice what it says. 
endowed by their Creator. It is a God-given right. That's the point that's being made. And let me pause for a second, highlight it again. Our religious freedoms are not arbitrarily given to people who happen to be religious. And there's a world of a difference between religious freedom and worship. Now, let me say that again. There's a world of a difference between religious freedom and freedom to worship. The culture, the society around us in which we play an active part every day as we live out our lives have shifted in the last 20 to 25 years from freedom of religion to put more of an emphasis on freedom to worship because if society or any government can contain you in the four walls where you worship on a Sunday morning and say you're free to do whatever you like in those four walls, but once you are in society, you're no longer to live out your faith. That is not freedom of religion. And there's a subtle distinction there that we need to hold because it is a sacred right. It is so sacred, in fact, that the Attorney General called for a summit on religious freedom, and it happened four weeks ago. The Justice Department held the summit in Washington, D.C., and Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, started with these words. There are eight quotes here, so please don't glaze over. Hold on. Too many, in fact, for me to put them up on the screen. And he begins by saying this, there can be no doubt that we are stronger as a nation because of the contribution of religious Americans. Every day across America, they feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, educate the young people, and care for the sick. And they do so not because the government tells them to, but because they want to. They do these things because of their faith. Their faith provides something the state can never provide, meaning, purpose, and joy in their life. But in recent years, the cultural climate in this country and in the West more generally has become less hospitable to people of faith. Many Americans have felt that their freedom to practice their faith has been under attack. We don't give up our rights when we go to work, start a business, talk about politics, or interact with the government. In fact, Session goes on and says, we don't give up our rights when we assemble or join together. We have religious freedom as individuals and groups. In short, we have not only the freedom to worship, but the right to exercise our faith. The Constitution's protections don't end at the church parking lot. Our freedoms are never confined to the basement. The federal government is not just reacting. We are actively seeking carefully, thoughtfully, and lawfully to accommodate people of faith Religious Americans are no longer an afterthought. I cannot highlight and underline enough the value of what is held in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. 
Because when you take a stand for your faith, and it might be something as simple as someone in the office environment telling a joke that's off color, and you don't become involved and say, thanks, I I don't want to hear that. You have that right. You have that right to get to your feet at a parent teacher's association and talk about faith. You have that right in the business world. You have it in education and law. So when society or culture seeks to sideline, marginalize, minimize religious people as out of touch with nothing to say, a little odd, narrow-minded, judgmental, society is free to do that, but we are equally free to push back. And we are equally free to live out our faith day by day. Now, what does that mean? The passage tells us this, that the word of the Lord impacted the entire region. And Paul and Barnabas and the others were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Does that mean this, that whenever you're persecuted, joy comes, whenever you're discriminated against? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it means is this, that Paul and Barnabas were presenting the gospel in a winsome, credible, compelling manner, and the gospel was breaking into lives and changing hearts and minds and souls. And please hear this, when that happens, others will look at them and say, why are they different? What is going on? And our job is never to run from the culture or run from the society around us and shout in condemnation in some sort of stark, aggressive manner how bad and awful they are. Neither is it the polar opposite to somehow cough in embarrassment when someone asks us about our Christian values and our deeply cherished beliefs that impact us and our children and our grandchildren and our church and our society and our community. We don't apologize for being people of faith. We stand firmly in the middle taking a stance, being loving and gracious and winsome, and saying to people that are going through difficulty in their marriage, where every day they are facing acrimony and hatred and anger by getting alongside them and praying for them and saying, there is another way. It is praying for folks whose lives are falling apart around them and doing it with grace and a gentle winsomeness that impacts lives. That's what's going on in this passage. That's through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And how does the passage end? The passage ends and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And why? Because they were being faithful They were being people who say, we don't have it all together. We are not perfect, but we know his love and his grace. And there are times we get it wrong and we get it badly wrong. Please forgive us. But there are other times when we get it right. And God is blessing and encouraging and equipping and enabling. So the next time you are tempted not to take a stance for Christ, 
or you're tempted to say nothing and just let it go by, or you're tempted not to honor him in your faith each day, remember he is there with all of the moral and spiritual power of the Holy Spirit, equipping and enabling in order that we might be the church of God that is alive and thriving and growing. Because when we put our focus on transforming the spiritual heart of this city and being the people of God at this corner of Washington and Richardson, then the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work. And if ever this nation needed to hear from God, we cannot help but wonder if it is not this day. And it is our job to stand firm with grace in order that the Holy Spirit might graciously work in and through us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable passage of Scripture. And help us this week to seek to live out our faith day by day, not in a manner that is fearful, not in a manner that somehow makes us feel less, but in fact makes us fulfilled and content simply living out our faith day by day. Father, bless us, equip us, enable us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.